0: It's no secret that there are current problems in the world today. One of those problems in our society being sex trafficking. According to World Without Exploitation, a coalition that's against the trafficking of women, they say from December of 2007 to December 2018, there were just shy of 52,000 potential human trafficking cases reported. 52,000 cases. Now, in what appears to be a silent market, we hear only snippets of the terrible nature of this horrendous enslavement. So, these victims are abused for the sake of gain. There's no consideration of well being for the broken, and to ensure that these traffic victims stay the course, they're beaten. Their thinking is altered. They're emotionally degraded, and even they're forced substances in order to numb the pain, in order to trick them into actually believing the lie that their enslavement, that their trafficking is good, that it's actually natural, and that it's their only means of survival. But here's the reality: it's wicked. It is. Horrible. It's a lie. Now, as horrible as this one particular um, issue is, there's a greater problem that goes even deeper than sex trafficking. In fact, it's the bedrock that actually spurs the act. It, and here it is for us this morning. Let's be clear it's sin. Sin is the great motivator of evils in our day, and sin is what enslaves those who are outside of Christ. It's an enslavement that has gripped humanity by the neck and has looked to snuff life from any and all who take a breath. This is an enslavement that you can't shake. You can't. In fact, those who are enslaved to sin are entirely unaware that they're even in danger. There's ignorance. There's a numbness to the reality that there is danger. So here's something that we in this room must be clear on, that there's something that we must be aware of, that in the world, that may not be understood, that we are in desperate need of a rescuer. We're in desperate need of a deliverer. We need someone outside of ourselves in order to do for us what we can't do. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 2 because a deliverer emerges in the midst of Egypt to save the people of Israel from the hands of Pharaoh. So Moses' birth and exile point us to a greater, the chief rescuer, the Lord Jesus who humbly came. Who identified with his people and delivered them from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin forevermore. And so, with that this morning, I would love for you all to turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Page 45, if you have one of our Bibles from the chairs. And while you're turning there, you're going to notice that we have three points that we're going to be looking at this morning. Number one, the birth of the deliverer. Number two, the exile of the deliverer, and number three, our need for the deliverer. And so as you do turn there with me, I think it's helpful for us to just keep it clear and right at the very forefront of our brains that the Bible is all about Jesus. And so yes, we're gonna look at the emergence of this deliverer, Moses, but my goodness, we're gonna see even more clearly that at the right time, there's a greater deliverer that has come. And so that is the greatest desire that I have for us this morning, that we would see that even as we are in our Old Testament this morning. So let us read Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son she named him moses because she said i drew him out of the water now notice with me as we begin here in verse 1 moses starts by saying now so there's a specific context in which this is all taking place in right as you may remember in chapter 1 we're in the middle of egypt right the, the hebrews have been enslaved for 400 years 400 years, make sure we are clear on that number. And then Pharaoh's furious, why? Because he can't seem to stop these people from multiplying. He can't thwart the purposes of God, right? These Hebrews just keep multiplying like wildfire. So what's the resolution to this problem? Look at chapter one, verse 22 with me. It says, then Pharaoh commanded all his people He said, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So every Hebrew son is charged to die by drowning. Now just take that in, that reality for a moment. So in the midst of this terror, babies being chucked into the Nile River, there's a beam of light. The Deliverer is born. And this deliverer is born into a priestly heritage. But why do I say that? Well, because the deliverer's parents are from the house of Levi. Just look back at the text with me. It says in verse 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So a pure line from this Levitical um, tribe. So now according to the Old Testament, it's clear that the house of Levi would soon be considered the priesthood of tribe, meaning that the males from the tribe of Levi would soon become mediators between God and man. So this deliverer that's actually born here is a Levite, a soon-to-be priest over the people of God. That, we're going to see that soon uh, in the book of Exodus. But so not only do we know that the deliverer comes from a pri- priestly line, right? But the text shows us that this deliverer has a humble birth. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me again, right? The, the woman conceives, bear, bores a son, and we see that he's a fine child, hid for three months, and then unfortunately things move forward, can't hide the baby anymore, right? But what we clearly know is that Moses's mother had a son. Here's the dilemma though. This son is sentenced to death as soon as he takes a breath, right? Just remember the decree from Pharaoh, He is to die. So he should be cast directly into the Nile. But what happens? She saw, so she being Moses' mother, she saw that he was a fine child and she hid him for three months. Now verse 2 tells us that she specifically saw that he was a fine child. That's Moses. Now my question when I looked at this text is, that's a very specific detail. <laughs> that's very interesting. Why would you make, I mean, I'm sure every mother loves to think, my baby's so beautiful, right? But I think that there's more that's going on here, right? Scholars have actually debated this phrase, but, and it seems that there's a better rendering of this phrase. And this is what I think, I suggest, would be the phrase. Instead of, she saw he was a fine child, potentially should say, and she saw that he was good. The phrase actually is to be mirrored with some other words that we've heard in the Old Testament before. Can you think of where we've heard that same type of language? Genesis 1. Genesis 1.18 says, and God saw that it was good. What's it? It's the creation. So just think of the original audience here, right? The original audience is a Jewish audience. They know the language. They pick up on this type of phrase. So what's the purpose? Well, I think it's twofold. So here's the first. Number one, it showcases that this beautiful child is a good thing. It's a good thing just like we saw in Genesis 1. God made it and it was good. This baby's born and that's a good thing. Right? But secondly, the creation language is used here to enhance the audience's understanding of who this baby is. And who is he? He's the deliverer. And this deliverer acts as the forerunner, the firstborn of God's new people. Southern seminary professor Dwayne Garrett writes this. He says, the implication... Is that as Israel is the beginning of God's new creation of a people for himself, so also the assessment of Moses, even as a baby, shows him to be an example of the new work of God, the beginning of a new humanity that is truly good. So Moses is the firstborn of a new humanity that the Lord is going to draw out for himself in the book of Exodus. And that's what we're going to see. So this is a recreation of a savior. It's a re-display of salvation through judgment. And We're going to see that in just a moment. Right? But so Moses' mother not only looks on her son says that's a beautiful baby, right? But then she actually walks by faith rather than fear. Right? Just listen to what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by who? By his parents. Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So by faith in the Lord, Moses' mother and father were not afraid of the king's decrees. So what they do? They hide him for as long as they possibly can until he's squirming way too much. Right, And then they still refuse to chuck him in the river. They still do. What do they do instead? Verse 3. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now just hear the faith of this woman. It's just like the midwives that we heard about in chapter one, in the middle of difficulty, what do they do? They don't fear Pharaoh. No, they fear the Lord. They hold tightly to God's word. They hold tightly to the, promise, to the promises of God. Now that's so encouraging for even me this morning. That's how I want a parent. I want a parent like we see in, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 2. A, a, a fear of God rather than a fear of man that's stimulated not by, uh, you know, the culture or what they have going on outside of these four walls, but it's a recognition that God is faithful to his promises, that we stand firm in the word of God and press on by faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, Moses recalls all of these events, right? He's the one who's writing this book, And so he's telling of how he escapes from death as a baby. And it's very specific about the words he uses. It's purposeful. Just look at verse three again, right? She puts, that's Moses' mother puts Moses in the basket. Now here's something very interesting. Do you know what this word basket means in the original language? It means ark. And there's only one other time that this word is used outside of Exodus 2. Do you know where that is found? Genesis 6.14. And so here, ready to make it even more mind-blowing, right? What's the basket ark made out of? It says bitumen and pitch. That's the exact same materials that covered the outside of the ark in Genesis 6.14. Just listen to it. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with what? With pitch. So here is the thing. Just as God's hand of grace was on Noah, a deliverer, bringing salvation, so it was with the deliverer, Moses. So there's salvation through a water judgment. Hello, Noah. Hello, Moses. So as Moses is penning these words, he's declaring, I'm the new Noah. I'm the second savior of humanity that's spared through judgment to bring about deliverance of God's people by God's own hand. I'm the seed of the woman. That's what Moses is telling us here. He's setting it up that he goes, Hey, I'm the deliverer that's being emerged in Exodus chapter 2. So the seed of the woman is placed in a basket along the Nile, the exact place where the baby was to be killed, right? Keep that in mind. And Moses' mother did exactly what she was told to do, kind of, sort of. She placed the kid in the river, but she didn't drown her poor child, right? Her boy's in the Nile, but the baby is placed as safely as it possibly could be in the Nile. It's placed in this wonderful little boat-like structure, kept away from all water. So as we're going to see in verse 23, things look pretty bleak. But this baby's spared, right? Verse 23, as we are going to get to it, God's people are groaning, right? Because they're experiencing tremendous persecution. I mean, being forced to chuck all of your baby boys in the Nile. That's pretty difficult stuff. And they can't see God's hand, can they? It doesn't seem like God is near. No, the fog is too dense. Their pain is too great. And so, when we come to this junction in the story, it's really helpful for us to think about ourselves. Aren't we like this at times? Where things are just too hard and we can't see the hand of God. Where the fog is so dense that it seems as if there's no hope But look, God spares Moses, this deliverer. God remains faithful. He isn't done yet in this narrative. And so we can't miss this this morning. God is completely unwavering in his pursuit of redemption for his people. That's clear in Exodus 1 and 2. He's accomplishing what he promises to fulfill. God isn't absent from our text this morning. He sits on his throne. And he's ruling and he's reigning. And even now, in our case, in our difficulty, in our stressors of life, he forever and continuously rules and reigns. And so in this case, we are now awaiting the culmination of the deliverer's finished work. Right? We are awaiting when Christ, the greater deliverer, comes and returns for his people and makes all things new. That's what we await. And so even as we're looking forward in Exodus, how encouraging it is that we have a faithful God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we have seen to this point, this deliverer, his heritage, we've seen his humble birth, but now we see a royal beginning. Because through Moses' birth, we now have a hand of protection. God's hand is here. And he becomes a member of Pharaoh's royal household. So let's look here forward and notice in verses 5 through 10, we see the interaction between Pharaoh's daughter and then, uh, well, Moses' sister and then Moses' mother. And so you're going to notice here that Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby. And this baby's not wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But it's just packed up with a bunch of reeds, right? I mean, talk about humble beginnings. And what's this woman's response, right? What's Pharaoh's daughter's response here? She makes him her own, she adopts this baby. Now, how funny is that, though? I mean, the irony is just unbelievable, right? Pharaoh's daughter adopts a Hebrew male, right? One who is to be murdered, she spares. Like, your dad goes and says, kill them all, and then the daughter's like, bring this kid in, right? It's completely mind-blowing. So she agrees to allow Moses' mother, then, to be the one to actually nurse this child until the the baby's good and ready to be brought into Pharaoh's home. And so what does the text tell us here? The irony just keeps going, right? Verse 8, and I will give you your wages. That's Pharaoh's daughter speaking to Moses' own mother. The Egyptian serves the Hebrew mother. And at the appropriate time, then Moses is brought in, adopted into the Egyptian household. And here it it just continues to be funny to me. right? Right under the nose of the most powerful leader in all of the known world at the time the one who tried to kill him, he's now sleeping down the hallway. It's just so funny to me, right? And then he's naming him, right? His name is Moses. I drew you out of water. Oh, the water that my dad actually said you should be dying in. His name is Moses. And so Moses becomes royalty. He's literally like a prince. He's sitting at the table with this guy, Pharaoh. right? Just listen to Stephen, Right? years and years and years and years later, he recalls this account in Acts chapter 7, verse 21 through 22. And so he says this, and when he, Moses, was exposed, so from the ark, or the ark boat, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So Moses... He's born in a humble state. Then he's made royalty, purposed to rule and reign as he is instructed in all things Egypt. And as we're going to see, he, re- he counts it all worthless. Given everything to his credit. Right? Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. We're going to see he counts it all as worthless. Now does any of that seem familiar to you? as we're reflecting on the upbringing, the emergence of this deliverer, do you hear any tickling in the ears of somebody else? Yeah, as wonderful as it is to see these amazing events in the humble life of Moses, they're just shadows of somebody greater. They're shadows of the true and lasting deliverer. In fact, Moses' emergence as deliverer points us forward to none other than the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus is the greater Moses, right? So like Moses, Jesus was humbly born and then saved from a tyrannical killer named Herod who desired to kill all the babies from a little insignificant town in fear of a king who would rise and conquer. Like Moses, Jesus sojourned in the land of Egypt. And Matthew 2.15 tells us that out of Egypt... I called my son. Like Moses, Jesus is the greater firstborn son who now ushers in the new creation, both Jew and Gentile, into one new man from death into eternal life. He is the true seed of the woman. He is the true and better Adam, Noah, and Moses. And he is the true and everlasting deliverer. Jesus is greater than Moses. And so what we have in Exodus 2 sets our eyes not on Moses, but points us forward into the work of Jesus, the great deliverer on our behalf. And so we just continue to see this parallel, but this beautiful story of not only humble beginnings, not only of birth of this emergent leader, right? This leader being emerged. But then we also see the exile of this deliverer. And this exile is all as seen through the lens of rejection of the world. So the Deliverer was born, but he does not consider the royal family his own, does he? No, he actually rejects the world, which is seen through two areas, I think. One, his identification with his people, and two, his fight for his people. And so the Deliverer is exiled. But why? Why does that take place? Well, let's read verses 11 through 25 together as we see the exile of this deliverer here. Verse 11 One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. And watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So at this point, time has passed by. In fact, the Bible tells us it's been about 40 years out exiled. And so verse 11 tells us Moses has grown up, right? But see here how he's still a part of the royal family, right? He's grown up, he's gotten older, he's still hanging around, enjoying the benefits of being in the Pharaoh's house. That's the house he's grown up in. But the text tells us who he identifies with. Look at verse 11. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses doesn't identify with the household that he's dwelling in, does he? No, he identifies with the people who are being enslaved, the Hebrews. And it's absolutely everywhere in verses 11 through 22. Right, Just hear it, verse 11, his people, Verse 13, he goes out again to see his people. And in verse 22, what's the name that he gives his son? We're going to see that in a little bit. He says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So you see, here's the idea throughout the entirety of the narrative. He knows that he's a Hebrew. He identifies specifically with those that are enslaved and not with the enslaver. So the Hebrews are his people. That's who he identifies with. He's living life as a stranger in a foreign land. But as we see in the text, his love and his desire that's expressed right towards the Hebrews, his desire to deliver them from their enslavement, isn't going to be well received. Why? Well, because he sins against the Egyptians in his pursuit to come alongside them, to love them, to support them, and to what? To identify and fight for them. Just look at how he decides to interject himself in this one case, right? An Egyptian's beating a Hebrew. He's fed up with it. He wants to save them, rescue them. Verse 12 tells us, He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So He murders this guy here. He not only murders him, but then he tries to get away with it, right? Look how he recalls his actions here, right? In verse 12, he looks this way and that. Kills the guy and then hides the body. So this is not an accident here, right? He's not like, oops, sorry, didn't mean to do that. No, he knew what he was doing. He had motive. He acted in haste and anger and what? He's deceptive. He's deceiving. He's slithering around here trying to get away with murder, literally. But you know, as I was studying this passage, I was struck by the reality of what Moses does here. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, we got an imperfect deliverer here, don't we? Yeah, he's sinning in, in what he does. So there's a huge problem that we have to address. He murders an Egyptian, right? One of those that his own household would have told them to be out there and beating the enslaved. And so it's clear from the text that he's most certainly identifying those he identifies with and those he fights for are his people. But what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. He says, this is my time to deliver. I'm going to do it now. And so what do we have an issue of here? It's not in the Lord's timing for deliverance. He wants to put it Moses wants to deliver when he sees fit. But we know that's not the case. God will deliver, but now is not the time. But so this all must draw our attention this morning beyond Moses' sinful act. This actually draws our attention to a greater deliverer. One who is sinless in every regard. It brings us to the Lord Jesus, the one who was sent to dwell among sinful men, identifying with his people to fight, to rescue, and to save that which was lost. But here is the thing. And this is one glorious difference between Moses and Jesus. Christ never sinned. Christ never sinned. He had to be fully God and fully man in order to be a perfect, true, and even better sacrifice for the sins of the many. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 is extremely helpful for us, right? Get this in our brains. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in the deliverer, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? We're spared from the wrath of God. We're given a place in the kingdom of God and we're declared righteous before God because the sinless Saviour bore the curse that we deserve to endure. That's a blameless, perfect, glorious deliverer to rescue us from our greatest taskmaster, sin. So here is the beauty that we see even in Exodus 2. We have an imperfect deliverer here, but it just draws our eyes forward To the greater, perfect deliverer who was sinless. Who satisfies fully the payment that we deserved to die. Now Moses' sinful action for the well-being of the Hebrews doesn't work in his favor. Doesn't, right? Being a murderer doesn't actually work well for having people wanting to follow you. If we don't catch that logic, right? Verse 13, 14 says... When he went out the next day, right? Catch that, that's kind of funny, right? He's a murderer. He just murdered a guy and he's going back to hang out with these people once again. And behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So once again, right, he goes out, he's with the Hebrews, and he's trying to mediate between these two men. And what's their response? They will not listen to him. Why? Because he's a murderer. He's no different than those who has just been enslaving them for 400 years. You live in their house and you act just like them. We saw it, we heard about it. Right? So in response, Moses becomes fearful that his actions have actually spread all across the land. And so Moses flees from the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not happy. Pharaoh's chasing him down. Moses is out of there. And so he leads himself out to the Midianites, wanders, and comes upon them. And so we had one who flees, who rejects the world as identifying with his people, fighting for his people, not perfectly, and then he flees into exile. He lives in exile, and he lives with them for another 40 years of time, right? And all the while, what's God doing, right? What happened for 40 years in the middle middle of wilderness land with some random nomadic tribe, right? Well, God is preparing Moses for his perfect timed deliverance for his people. This is on God's time, 40 years before he will go back into Egypt. So just look with me as we see how Moses is guided in this time as both a shepherd and as one who serves as a leader. So look at verse 16 and 17. It says Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came. And drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Now, notice here the ways in which Moses is becoming a great shepherd, right? Some things are taking place that look different from the characteristic that we had seen of Moses beforehand. This is one who not only is quick to observe harm, right? He sees these shepherds come, but then he leads, he defends, he he cherishes these women. He doesn't deal in a harsh manner as we had seen before, right? But he jumps into the situation as a true rescuer. So where he once failed, right? As this murderous man, murdering the Egyptian, he acts mightily within this situation. So these terrible shepherds come to take advantage, right? They're trying to take advantage of these women and this shepherd of the people, this guy Moses is gentle towards the women, He's not only not only we not only see this in his gentleness right his protection his shepherding his guiding as this shepherd figure but we see too how he serves them as a leader so Moses Moses' servant leadership is also developed in this 40-year stretch. And we see this specifically in this section in verses 16 and 17, right? Just look at how he not only defends the women, right? Comes up as this deliverer, this guarder, this protector, but then he serves them. And I think it's really helpful for us to get the picture in our brains of what's going on in this narrative. This is an Egyptian man, right? He, he probably looks a lot like Egyptian, maybe rather than a Hebrew even. And so this Egyptian man is in the middle of a strange land, in the wilderness, with a bunch of nomadic women, and he's doing the unthinkable. He does for those helpless women what they couldn't do for themselves. Right in verse 17 tells us Moses did what? He watered their flock. He drew the water for them. And then he waters all of their flock. So he's down on his knees as a servant, leading. The Egyptian ruler lowers himself, serves without hesitation. That's the aspects of a true deliverer. Serving, shepherding, leading for the good of others. And so what's the result? Well, there's blessing. Right? Verses 18 through 22 tell us that he's then brought into the home of Raul. And so they dine together, and Moses is given a wife, Zipporah. And so what's the result of this marriage? It's offspring. Just look at verse 22. It says, she gave birth. So that's Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So we just need to see and hear Moses' clarity. So he calls his firstborn son, right? He's in this land, his firstborn son, he has a name for this kid, Gershom. And so the name, the name depicts his life sojourning not in this random area with this nomadic people in the wilderness. No, it's looking back to his time sojourning in a foreign land called Egypt. He knows that Egypt wasn't home. Now, we have not only Exodus chapter 2 that helps us out to see Moses' view of Egypt, but just listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27, right? He says this, the author of Hebrews does. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing Rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for, right? Or because he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, right? Because he murdered a guy. Why? Look, because he endured as seeing him who is invisible, seeing God. So, by faith in the God of the Hebrews, Moses identified with the people of God as a slave. Enslaved in Egypt rather than enjoying, delighting in sin. He found the chief deliverer more satisfying than anything else that he could possibly be offered in all of Egypt. Bring on the wisdom, bring on all the money. No, forget it all. He fled Egypt not in fear of man, but in eager anticipation. Eager anticipation of seeing and knowing God Himself. So here is a million dollar question for us this morning. Who did Moses put his faith in? It wasn't in Moses. It wasn't in a bunch of bulls and goats but it was in the promised Messiah. So he's eagerly anticipating for the one to put to death the greater taskmaster forever. So this deliver in Exodus 2 has his mind's eye fixated on the Messiah, on the one who's to come. Now, how helpful is that for us? So, here's the question I'd like for us to ask ourselves Are we convinced that Jesus is better than the fleeting pleasures that this world has to offer? Is he truly better? Are we actually living our lives right now, right in the here and now, as sojourners in a foreign land? Are we strangers and aliens? Are we cultivating greater taste buds for heaven or are we creating, cultivating greater taste buds for worldly treasures? I think this is really hard to think through. I know so because I've been trying to think through it for myself, right? But what does it actually look like for us to cultivate a mentality that looks forward rather than the here and now? Well, we must be clear, we're not looking to Moses this morning. That's not where the sermon's going. Let's just be clear. We look to Jesus. We look to the chief deliverer. We contemplate Christ. We weigh and measure. We say, world promise what God promises. Oh my goodness, Jesus blows it all away. He blows this world to bits. Why? Because Jesus offers something so much greater than this world offers Jesus offers himself. Right, Matthew 28 is really helpful for us. Or, I'm sorry, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 is really helpful. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I, that's Jesus, will give you rest. So in essence, Christ is saying the great shepherd, the greatest servant leader, himself, the deliverer, will supply your need and give you rest forever. So let me ask you, Where's your heart being tugged by the world this morning? Why is it tugging that particular area of your life? And how does it display your affections for your own temporal comfort than a Godward anticipation of our great reward, the Lord himself? What do you dream and think about? What captivates your imagination? What captivates the essence of what you desire for your life? I pray that we would be a people here that look to the reward rather than the stuff of earth. Now so, in light of what we've seen in Exodus chapter 2, I think it's helpful to remember that God desires to deliver. And here's another question for you. When we look at Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Where's God? It doesn't seem like he's doing much. I mean, specifically, just from his name being mentioned. Very little we see anything about what God has done. Right? It doesn't say, and then God came and was smiting the Egyptians. No, we don't have any of that. But is that true? Is he really not doing anything here? No, God's at work. Just look what happens in verses 20 through 25, right? The Hebrews aren't crying out to the Lord at all, right? It just says they're, they're, they're uh, crying, they're in anguish, they're groaning, and their groaning is going up to the skies, and then the Lord hears it, right? But what or who are they crying out to? It's like they're crying out to anyone or in everything. Right? It's like an injured man who wanders aimlessly in the street to find anyone at all who would be able to assist him with this difficulty. Help, help, anybody, can you help me? Right? This is a frantic Hebrew people. 400 years. They're still enslaved. They've been waiting for a God that said, I'm going to give you a great name, great nation, great blessing. Where is he? You hear the frantic nature of their groaning. I mean, can you imagine? God promises all these wondrous things to your people through this guy, Adam, and then there's silence for 400 years. Like longer than our entire country has been around in existence. And then the Lord steps in. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. So Pharaoh's dead. But this slavery continues, right? Pain, death, torture, 400 years. And we have a major hinge here that transforms the entire entire narrative. Sorry. God initiates his redemption and God remembers his covenant. I mean, how glorious is this? God initiates and God remembers. And so here's what we need to remember as we look at verses 23 through 25. God is not weak. He's not needing of our praise. God doesn't have a hole in his heart for where we fit in so nice and neatly to make him perfectly whole again, right? No, God is utterly and entirely sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need me or you. And yet, we have verses like verses 23 through 25. His plans can't be thwarted. And we can't even grasp, we can't even fathom a small measure of the infinitude of his wisdom. And so what does our text tell us here? Not, just notice, no Egyptian god answers the cries of the oppressed. There's no sun god saying, I'm here, Israel. No, the one true God hears their plea for rescue. Look at verse 24. God heard their groaning. And when he heard their groaning, what invigorates, right? What stirs the workings of redemption of the enslaved? Look at verse 24b. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered. He remembered that he said, I'm going to give you, Abraham, a great land, a great nation, a great blessing. So God saw his people his chosen people, and he knew. That's what the text tells us. But what did he know? What did God know? He knew their suffering. And he certainly knew his promises. So what's God going to do? He sends forth a deliverer at the right time to redeem his people from slavery under the hand of of Pharaoh, and draw them out to himself, making him, making them his treasured possession. But here's the beauty, it doesn't stop in Exodus 2, because God calls an even greater deliverer to know and to make known of the great and chief deliverer, Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the eternal son who was humbled even to the point of death on a cross to be a great sufficient substitute to deliver us not from physical enslavement and death and despair, but a spiritual enslavement and death. God sent forth his son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves because of our enslavement. That's unbelievable that we see the connections all the way from Exodus 2 and this deliverer Moses that foreshadow and forerun to see a greater deliverer Jesus to do for us an amazing work of God. So where do we go from here? What takeaways could we possibly make from Exodus 2? Well, I think it's clear that not only we the Hebrews in need of deliverance. But man, oh man, so are we. We need a rescuer. We need a rescuer even now, every single hour of our days. We have a need, a desperate need for the deliverer. Because there's a reality that some are still enslaved to sin. And that there's also now those who have been made No longer enslaved to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. So many of us have heard all kinds of details about this story in Exodus chapter 2. Maybe even thousands of times. But what we must recognize this morning is that there's a greater need that we need to be clear on. There's a spiritual enslavement that this world is completely numb and ignorant to. I mean, just as those poor women who are, have been sex trafficked and roped into these horrendous lifestyles, completely numb to the situation, held in hostage by another, we too have bought the lie of this world. That there is no issue of sin. That we aren't actually enslaved to sin. Right? So those who in and of themselves, apart from Christ, are dead in their sins, they're in bondage to their sin. So we at one time were bound in chains awaiting our death sentence. Right? When we stood before a judge at one time, we were enemies of the cross of Christ. And so the reality is is that those who have not put, yet put their faith and trust in Christ alone are still dead in sin. And even more so, let's be clear, they are enslaved to sin. So know this if you are not trusting in Christ alone, you have not trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, right now you are enslaved to sin. There couldn't be anything more terrible. But here's the beauty. Jesus can deliver you from the domain of darkness, bring you forth into his marvelous light. Right? Just hear the language of Spurgeon. Jesus is what Moses wasn't and could not be. Jesus is God. So, oh, come, poor, trembling sinner, and trust your case in his hands. He can break the power of the Pharaoh of your sins and set you free. Even now, he can bring you forth out of Egypt. Only trust him. Follow him and be obedient to his commands. He's able to save you to the uttermost, the chief deliverer of souls. So the deliverer, the Lord Jesus, offers to unlock the chains of death for you. But will you believe on his name? Will you treasure Christ alone? Are you willing, are you truly able to boldly exclaim, take this world and give me Jesus, in his cross my trust shall be. No, not in your own strength, you cannot. But by God's grace, through the work of the Spirit, you can have a life in Christ And so we pray that today would be the day of salvation for you who is dead in sin. So come forth from the grave and live for Christ. Now you, brothers and sisters, what do we got in Exodus 2 for the people of God? The question is, what don't we have in Exodus 2 for the people of God? Here it is. Don't neglect this truth. You were enslaved to your sin. You were enslaved to your sin, and Christ, the great deliverer, made you alive, not only to be set free, but also to now be a slave for his good pleasure, a slave of righteousness by the chief deliverer, the one who humbly was born in a manger, sojourned in Egypt for a time in preparation for his ministry, who grew up in the wisdom and stature of God, living a perfect, sinless life, and at the perfect time was crushed in our place, and then rose again from the dead, conquering the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, for forevermore in your stead. That's the chief deliverer. Now just hear John 8, 34 through 36, right? Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed you will be free. How glorious a truth is that for the people of God. If you're in Christ this morning, you're free. You are free from sin and death and judgment. Because why? You have a champion who bore the wrath you deserved. A greater chief deliverer than Moses. So here's my encouragement for us this morning. Let's run. Let's run as slaves of righteousness and not slaves who are falling into fear. Let's not run back to the vomit like dogs, but by faith let us press on to work in the, walk in the grace that has been lavished on us by the Spirit of God, unwavering in our hatred of that which enslaved us and overwhelmingly unashamed of the gospel that saved us. So let's walk as strangers in a foreign land with one another, actively stirring up the body, the body of Christ, to love and good deeds, but also to a greater hatred for sin. It would be a shame for the people of God to love sin and not hate it. So let's not tolerate sin, but extract that which looks wicked and looks to kill us and enslave us, which means we actually have to do regular heart work. And that's the part we really don't like to get at, right? But there are really helpful questions that I think could encourage and stir us up to not be idle but have a rigorous hatred for sin. So we need to ask ourselves questions like this. Where have I tolerated my own sin rather than look to cut it off this week? Am I pursuing joy in Christ alone or in other things? Am I willing to sin in order to get that job, that car, or that grade on the test? Is my greatest satisfaction in Jesus? And if it is not in Jesus, what is my greatest satisfaction and joy right now? So let's be clear. These questions are not just like, check the box, like, okay, I, I said them to myself done, I'm good, let's move forward. No, these questions give us the legs to our passionate pursuit of Christ as we look to be true slaves of righteousness, desirous of that which the Lord Jesus is desirous of for his glory alone. And so even in the failures and missteps, here's the beauty, is the chief deliverer brought forth the spirit of God to do that good work in us. So you are a slave of righteousness for his glory, not your own. Slaves to the deliverer for his kingdom work, for his glory. So may God give us the grace to be a people that would consider the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of this world. For we are looking to the reward. We are looking to the great deliverer. Let's pray. Father, We are so thankful for your work through the ages that we see in in and through the life of Moses that you made a a way for an emerger of of deliverance to come. But Father, we thank you that it looks forward to the greatest and chief deliverer, that you deliver those from sin and death and judgment to your wondrous, your wondrous name. God, we pray that we would recall to mind the gospel, that we would remember that we were dead in our sins, that we've been made alive to Christ, and we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. We pray by your spirit that we would go forth and we'd be conformed to the image of Christ for your glory alone. It's in his name we pray, amen.